Chapter Twelve of Captain Ted by Mary T. Wagaman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Twelve A Friend in Need. You must excuse the liberty I have taken in calling you down here, Colonel Jarvis, but this is a matter that requires your personal attention. This young rascal, whom I have just caught loaded with counterfeit bills, had a letter enclosing six dollars addressed to you. The gentleman took the letter, stared at it blankly for a moment, and then light burst upon him. "'Good Lord!' he blurted out to Ted. "'I knew I had seen you somewhere before, my boy. You're Dolly's Teddy.' "'Yes, sir,' faltered Ted, and then the tone, the name, the remembrance it brought, proved nearly too much for our captain's youthful manhood. Dolly's father caught the pitiful tremor of the boyish lip. "'What the thunder and lightning!' and a great many other things, for the colonel had fought on the plains, and learned very vigorous speech. Does this mean, Grimes? Why the— Another old soldier's outburst. Are you holding up a boy like this? I know him. This letter is all right, and it proves him an honest, truthful little gentleman. It ought to have reached me long ago, returning some money I lent him, but I gave him the wrong card. My residence, not my business address, and there's no post office at Dunmore. You're all off the track, Grimes, this time for sure. "'Perhaps so, Colonel,' said Mr. Grimes dryly. "'Still, it remains for you and the honest little gentleman "'to explain what he was doing with one thousand dollars "'in counterfeit bills in his pocket, "'and why he was ready to knock down an officer of the law.' "'Oh, I didn't know. I didn't understand,' "'interposed Captain Ted, finding speech at last "'under the kind, clear gaze of the Colonel's eyes. "'If you will hear, if you will believe me, sir,' "'and again the boyish slip and tone, quivered in a way that went to the colonel's big father heart. "'You can't believe a word he says. I warn you, colonel,' said Grimes. "'He came very near fooling me.' "'I'll risk the fooling,' observed the colonel curtly. "'Go on, my lad. What were you doing with that money in your pocket today?' "'I was fooled with it, sir,' continued Ted bitterly. "'I've been fooled straight through.' And then, feeling at last that he had the ear of justice, our captain told his story with a simple, boyish directness that was convincing even to so professional a critic as Officer Grimes. "'How long have you been working for these scoundrels?' cross-questioned the colonel. "'Not quite two weeks, sir. And, you see, we needed the money so much to buy groceries and coal and everything, and there was no one but me.' "'I see,' said the colonel. "'Yes, my boy, I see. And did you ever carry bad money for them before?' "'I don't know, sir,' answered Ted frankly. "'I've been sent to the same man for packets like this several times, "'but I can't say what was in them. "'He was queer. They all were queer. "'I see it now. "'The list of lawyers was no good to them. "'It was just a trick to keep me and fool me, "'and, and ruin me forever.' "'Again the young voice broke, "'and the old soldier's heart went out to this defeated comrade "'in a burst of tenderness and sympathy.' "'Ruin you? Not a bit of it, not a bit,' he said, clapping Ted heartily on the shoulder. "'Of course it's none of my business to meddle with yours, Grimes,' continued the colonel. "'But if you'll leave this young gentleman to me, I'll be responsible for his appearance, whenever and wherever you want him, while you turn your attention to Messrs. Sharkey and Trap as rapidly as possible.' "'I will, sir, I will,' said Mr. Grimes eagerly. "'I'll look into that rascally business right away.' 
but it was too late when Officer Grimes, armed with all his powers, reached the top of the beanstalk. Its wicked giants had disappeared. The locked office was burst open. Some big dummy account books, Ted's list of lawyers, a number of empty bottles and cigar boxes, and several worn pack of cards were found to be the only assets of the firm. Ted remembered afterward having caught a fleeting glimpse of Mr. Trapp's red face and flashing scarf-pin as he entered Varnum's on his fateful errand. Some wireless warning must have reached these sharpers, who were doubtless always ready for rapid transit. For, despite all Mr. Grimes' professional efforts to discover them, Ted's late employers seemed to have vanished into air. But the vigorous inquiry instituted at the beanstalk proved Messrs. Sharkey and Trapp to be a pair of rascals, who, under various names and by various methods, had long defied the law. Their last enterprise had been most successful. None guessed that Trap and Sharkey in their shiny, newly painted office in the top of the beanstalk were in reality the easy-money men who were flooding the town with counterfeit bills, manufactured to their order, and sending out keen-witted young scamps to pass this money on the innocent and unsuspicious. But all this came out later. All our brave young captain knew today was that a kind, strong, fatherly hand had lifted him from disgrace and defeat into honor and safety again. For Ted, once that he had found his wits and voice could give references, satisfactory even to Mr. Grimes, Judge Waters, Father Bolton, a score of the friends who were still sending jelly and flowers to Dad's sick room, unconscious of the brave fight our fourteen-year-old captain was making with an unknown world for his helpless family. Colonel Jarvis, used to the survey of battlefields, took in the situation with a practiced eye, and felt that little Miss Dolly was, as usual, right, that Teddy was just the straight, clean, big boy brother that she wanted. Get into your jacket, my lad, and brace up. You're all right, and Dolly is upstairs and will be glad to see you. And when Captain Ted, restored by the brisk military methods learned in St. Elmer's dormitory, to his trig, tap herself again, appeared at Jack's side, Miss Dolly could scarcely believe her own bright eyes. "'It's—it's it's Teddy!' she cried breathlessly. "'Oh, Jack, where—where did you find him?' "'Downstairs,' laughed her father. "'When does your mother expect you home, my boy?' "'Oh, not until six o'clock, sir.' "'I've got work for you, then,' said the Colonel. "'I have a stockholders' meeting this afternoon that I don't want to miss, "'and my day is pretty well broken up already.' Can you play a big brother to this young lady of mine this afternoon? Oh, yes, yes. Won't you, Teddy, please? said Miss Dolly delightedly. I would only be too glad, sir, said Ted, feeling with a warm, grateful throb at his heart that this was the greatest mark of confidence Jack could bestow upon him. All right, then. The colonel drew out the railroad fare Ted's letter had returned to him. Pocket that again and don't spare it this time. Luncheon at Martini's, Dolly. Remember, strawberries and cream don't touch a big brother's back tooth. He'll want roast turkey and cranberry sauce and a regular Christmas dinner. And here are the box tickets for the matinee, Teddy. I don't trust Dolly in the general crush. Take a cab afterward and bring her to the Grosvenor. You will find me there, and I'll talk to you again at our leisure. And then what a gala afternoon it was for Captain Ted, after his morning of defeat and disgrace. For big boy brother was no new role to Ted. He had been playing it well and lovingly all his young life, and Miss Dolly, who had been playing fairy princess all her life, understood that role too. Such a luncheon as they had, in a beautiful room bowered with palms, a fountain sparkling in its great central court, 
and music playing in the upper gallery. Ted, who had kept his boyish appetite down of late in his new consciousness of butchers and bakers' bills, felt that never before, even after the Thanksgiving game at St. Elmer's, had roast turkey and cranberry sauce tasted like this. The dessert, which his fairy hostess ordered, consisted of ices in the shape of roses and lilies, cakes crusted two inches deep with chocolate, strawberries, and cream. Then, armed with a box of French bonbons, which Miss Dolly assured him was the necessary part of the performance, they went to the matinee. And Ted, who in his best days had only crowded in with other boys in the push, found himself ushered into a crimson curtain box, where he and Dolly could sink into soft velvet cushioned chairs, and take their ease, though the house was packed from the roof to floor, with less fortunate everyday mortals. Even our young captain, who had given up the fairy drama several years ago, was held breathless with delight by the gorgeous spectacle of the palace and garden, to which fair beauty went in filial sacrifice. But when the beast appeared, with a preliminary roar that made his juvenile audience quake, his glaring electric eyes and open mouth were really too much for Dolly, and she sprang from her cushioned chair and flew trembling to her big boy brother's arms. But the beast proved to be a most amiable one, as all students of the story know, and when at the last grand transformation scene, in a blaze of colored light, he emerged from his leathery hide, a young prince in golden armor, one really felt a thrill of regret that he had gone. It seemed a pity that such a friendly monster could not be transferred in all his native ugliness to the zoo, to be fed upon cookies and peanuts by little beauties for ever. Altogether, Ted passed such a delightful afternoon that the color came back to his cheeks and the light to his eyes, and he almost recovered from the shock of the morning. Almost, but not entirely. The lightning flash of horror that had showed him the danger, the peril, the treachery, into which he had so unconsciously ventured, could never be forgotten. It had left a mark on his young soul which could not be erased. Our captain's eyes had been opened. He could never believe and trust so unquestioningly again. He had found there was no umpire on life's campus to watch for fowls. He must look out for himself. This young man won't be trapped easily, again, thought Colonel Jarvis, as he caught the new expression on Ted's face when they had their promised talk together that evening. You'll want to go to work again, my boy, of course, said the colonel. Oh, yes, sir. Only, I'll be very careful this time, you may be sure. I'm willing to do anything. I understand now that I don't know very much about business, or I could not have been so easily fooled. But I might drive a wagon, or be a messenger boy, or collect bills. Anything to help Mother until Dad is well again. When does the doctor think that will be? He can't say, sir. He really doesn't know. He thinks if Father could get out in the country somewhere, or on the salt water, it might do him good. But... But we can't go. We will see about that, said the colonel quickly. Ted's cheek flushed with honest pride. Oh, thank you, sir. But I didn't mean that. We couldn't. We wouldn't take help, sir. Of course not, of course not, said Dolly's father hurriedly. I was thinking of another job for you, one that would take you and your father out of town. The colonel cast a keen glance at the boyish face that wore today, the old great-grandfather look of sturdy strength, and felt that this was just the sort of boy he would have liked to call his own. And then he asked suddenly, Are you afraid of ghosts, Teddy? End of chapter 12 Recording by Maria Therese